0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you today from Switzerland. We took a break for a few weeks, but we're back in action just in time for a resurgence in deal making. First, I check in with Liam Proud in London to discuss a story that has actually roiled, well, the Swiss financial scene here and beyond, and that's the idea of a merger between UBS and Credit Suisse. The basic idea is that it's interesting on paper, there's lots of financial advantages potentially, but it would be bloody in practice. Liam then turned the tables to ask me about a column I wrote this week on the impeccably ruthless deal making of LVMH boss Bernard Arnault, who's trying to wriggle out or get a better deal on his takeover of $16 billion Tiffany. Finally, Sharon Lamb spoke to Pete Sweeney about Yoshihide Suga, who's set to replace Shinzo Abe as Prime Minister of Japan. Give a listen. Liam Proud, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Rob? I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I was really interested. Here I am in Switzerland, and I got to read your story. A really fascinating story uh, about a potential merger between two uh, two big banks, the two biggest banks in Switzerland, mm-hmm. UBS and Credit Suisse, a 71 billion dollar um, of concept idea, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, this came out of a, a kind of an interesting genesis. The story came out first from uh, inside Paradaplatz. Which is this local kind of I don't even know what you call it kind of like a it's gossip a blog, sheet? Yeah. yeah, it's like a blog, a gossipy blog. Everyone in Zurich, funny enough, reads it, but but everyone sort of thinks it, you know, poops it. But this story, which said, well, t- tell me what t- tell me what the genesis of the story was and, and how it got everybody's um, calculating this deal.
1: So inside Paradeplatz had this story, as you said, that said the UBS chairman um, Axel Weber. Um, who people might remember, he was formerly the head of the Deutsche Bundesbank, um, very well-known banker, um, that he was working on a deal to merge with um, Credit Suisse, the other main bank in Zurich. Um, And by working on a deal, it meant he'd basically hired some management consultants to look at the idea. So it was very kind of hypothetical. It was not something that they were kind of actively talking about, but it was a very intriguing idea for um, people like us who like deals to kind of run the numbers anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is some, there's certainly some logic to it. I mean, let's, you know, you've got sure. these two Swiss banks, which are, you know, very good at a couple of things. They, they're they're leaders in wealth management and yep. asset management and asset management. So um, investment management, not just sort of the broker wealth management of really yep. high number of people. Um, then they're also investment banks with substantial presences around the world. Yep. And then they're also retail banks in like Switzerland.
1: So they're sort of almost mirror images of each other in a sense and that was i think the thing that made us intrigued about the deal was you see a lot of you know you chat to bankers chat to bank ceos and stuff and you do the kind of fantasy m a game you know you know i've had these conversations a million times um and you can come up with all these intriguing combinations and a lot of the time when you sit down and go through the numbers you say actually there's not that many costs to cut there but that is not the case with these two they so many similar things that there'd be enormous potential to cut costs.
0: So how big are the cost cuts out of this if they were? To-
1: well, I mean, it's sort of, you know, it, it depends how aggressive you want to be. I mean, I I put a very low ball number of about $3.4 billion a year, um, which I think you could argue for higher. But essentially, my, my assumption there is that you basically, you absolutely um, rip out costs from one of the investment banks. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably free up a load of capital in the process. Um, which could help for pay to pay for the kind of you know redundancies and and whatnot, right. um, and and then you probably can shave some kind of headquarter costs right like you don't need those two enormous um, buildings in Zurich with all the kind of associated overheads and stuff. Um, that's kind of clear obvious opportunity to get rid of expenses there. Um, the the problems are elsewhere really where you, the the main wealth management business. Is kind of very. People say you know it's very much relationship based, and right. you don't want to lose the the kind of the main
0: bankers that are. So the worry is the dis synergies, as they call totally. it. In other words, so you end up you know merge the wealth management business with Credit Suisse and UBS. You have all this overlap, and you have all these banker or whatever you call them, relationship managers, yep. who are like the hell with this. I'll just go over to Julius Baer, Goldman Sachs, and bring my clients with me.
1: And they're typically very close to the clients. Like they'll be on the phone to these you know high net worth people all the time kind of chat to them about their lives and you know they'll go to cocktail parties and so, so they say look I'm leaving you should come with me the clients do tend to do that and and maybe the clients would freak out anyway because they don't want to have all, all of their assets with say they had you know 30% of their assets with UBS 30% of Credit Suisse suddenly they've got a bit of an exposure problem they've got so much of their assets with one counterparty they might so they might pull their money so so yeah distinctions as you say could be could be big. Um, and right. you'd also have this issue of the bank would have assets that are like several times
0: larger than the Swiss economy, right? So you, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the balance sure.
0: sheets would be something like $2 trillion or something. Yeah, roughly. Um, yeah. And and that's, you know, that's a very big number. I think, as you said, 280% of Swiss 2019 GDP.
1: Yeah, that's it's, pretty big. It's amazing. And, I and mean, so
0: that's, that's like Iceland, Iceland when it went into the crisis.
1: So you, you'd have to shrink it somehow. I mean, I know one idea you talked about in the past, which I think would be plausible. Um, I can't remember if it, if it if it stayed in the piece in the end was about you know floating the one of the retail businesses. Probably you'd just float the
0: credit space retail business. Was one um, idea. Well, that came right. well of the T. Portions. John T. Tiam who used to be the CEO, that was early in his tenure, just a few years ago. He, yeah, I think they were planning to do an IPO or a, a spinoff yeah. of that business. Yeah.
1: Um, so, so that that would be one and. You- Antitrust domestically, because this combined bank would have massive mortgages. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the big picture here is that it's one bank deal where there would be a lot of costs to cut. But the fact that they are so similar would also present a load of problems, right? It would be too, it be too big for tiny little Switzerland, probably,
0: and it'd have too much of the domestic mortgage market. Um, it, and, right, yeah. right, and I mean, this is all coming up. I mean, the big picture on this is, you know, you wrote uh, wrote the other day about a, a in-market Spanish merger. Mm-hmm um Between what was it? Uh, Kaiser Bank and Bankia, uh, right? And 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 that's about, and it's entirely about cost cuts. I mean, every every bank in Europe is looking at negative interest rates, so negative interest margin. Their <laughs> their net interest margin going to practically zero, and at the same time, you have rising default rates because the economies are all have all been crapping out as a result of the COVID crisis. So the only route to kind of you know meeting your return on capital is to reduce costs. And the one natural way to do that is to, you know, look across the street and say, huh, there's a bank branch there and an investment bank over there. If we do do the same thing, we crunch in together and we can take the cost out. I just wonder, I mean, so so what's, you know, this is reflective in a sense of this process happening, say, in Spain, Italy, where you see Intesa uh, Mm -hmm. buying a Uh, a, a local bank, UbiBanca. Banca. Um, You know, maybe we could see this elsewhere. What do you think? I mean, is France next? Is Germany
2: next?
1: I think Spain and Italy the most likely ones, just because when you go through the market share numbers there, you can really easily get to combinations that aren't that politically difficult. Um, there are a lot of like local weak banks where you say, oh, quite obviously, you know, BBVA should buy Banco de Sabadell. You know, quite obviously, right. UniCredit should find some way to to buy uh, Monte de Paschi. Quite obviously, someone should buy BPM in Italy. The, the problem is when you find the weaker banks elsewhere in Europe. France, uh, SocGen is traded on a comically low valuation at the yes. moment, ABN AMRO in Holland, uh, Commerzbank in Germany. There isn't always a natural partner for them to merge with within the country. So I think our view, which we've run a few times now, has been those kind of too big to be swallowed. You know, you can't imagine SocGen being bought by BNP or ABN being bought by well.
0: I mean, I I don't know. know. You look around France and you look at SOCGen and and BNP and you look at the market share that they'd have. It's still, I mean, you've got Credit Agricole, BPC, you know, the large sort of, why don't you call them, like, mutually owned banks? Anyway, they have very large, uh, very large market shares. It's it's not, it's just, it's super messy. It's super messy. I mean, if you look at, it's a little bit like you wrote in your piece about UBS. What were we going to call it? Union Bank of Credit?
1: Uh, Credit Bank of of Switzerland
0: or, or... I can't remember the other ones UBCS, UBCS, yeah yeah or just credit well, bs swiss bank it's, yeah. you know but but it is i mean you you know the, the it's just so messy the idea of getting rid of you know an entire investment bank or you know an entire trading floor it just politically as you say not easy for uh for economies that are already struggling for their politicians to bear huge layoffs
1: yeah that's probably a good note to, to end that one on. But I, I wanted to ask you about a, st- a story that you've um, put out uh, yesterday about um, the the very well known um, French uh, billionaire, Bernard Arnault. Um, so he's he's been doing some kind of slightly, uh, you know, uh, cantankerous things with this deal <laughs> that um, uh, Louis Vuitton-Moyer Hennessy
0: had with Tiffany, right? I mean, what, yeah. What, 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 what caused you to call him a spoiled brat? Well, yes. So, well, he is. Remember, he's the richest man in Europe, worth 80 billion dollars. Probably one of the 10 richest men on the planet. And he has done it amazingly well. So, like, 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 he's probably right about everything. If if money right. counts, right? And and so my point was, one of but but he's also you know yeah, the word I used was impeccably ruthless. He is, and this is so in the Tiffany deal, we're seeing some of that. So they're basically trying to to wriggle out of a deal where they agreed to pay 16.2. Billion dollars, uh, 135 dollars a share in cash for Tiffany. You know, just before Thanksgiving, at the end of November last year. You know, when everything was hunky dory, and he, you know, he got it. Uh, a bee in his bond, he wanted to own Tiffany. You know, the sort of classic American jeweler. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's in this what they call hard luxury, where the, you know some of these firms want to bulk up, and uh, and he went crazy for it. You know, there was a there was a bidding war. Well, it was really it was basically they were the best the only buyer, but the, it did go up to a pretty high price. And then of course, COVID comes along and now he says, oh, you know, I didn't mean to pay so much. I don't really, you guys, you know, he's trying to wriggle out of it, which my only point is like, look, a deal is a deal. Yeah. Um, and you have, and this, they, apparently the deal is pretty ironclad, the, the, the you know, done in the state of Delaware, the, you know, the U S is a very, like, they're pretty, they're pretty experienced with law. The lawyers and have done this yes, about a million times. They don't right. leave obvious yeah. holes. It's very to hard come. to wriggle out. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things have come along. They've they they have uh, they've now disparaged the management of Tiffany during the crisis, suggesting that that also constituted potentially a material adverse change. In Which would the allow them to
1: back out of the deal.
2: Well, in
0: theory, but and you know, a Delaware Chancery Court judge is not keen to like make it easy for people to wriggle out of deals because then their desks would be piled up with people trying to wriggle out of deals. So that's going to be very difficult. They'd have to prove the material adverse uh, change. Um, and the, you know, a couple of the arguments LVMH has put out there are things like, I don't know, they paid dividends, Tiffany, well, a lot of luxury goods brands did not during the, the crisis. Um, they did it while they were losing money. Now, of course, everyone, you have to assume that they were, they, they were legally approved. Obliged or had agreed with the buyer LVMH that they would pay these dividends, um, but the the most spurious thing was this sort of letter that popped up from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, of France, which sort of said, "Oh, you know, we'd really rather you not do this deal while we're trying to figure out um, our t- discussions with the United States on trade." This now, is them
1: writing to LVMH. LVMH.
0: Yeah, and then like sort of. At the last minute, sharing it it seems with Tiffany, and then putting out a, a translated version. But it's 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 highly unusual for a couple reasons. Uh, th- this is all related to the digital tax that France wants to put on tech companies, yep. particularly U.S. ones. So it's odd that it didn't come through the Ministry of the Economy, um, which would have norm- which is is leading the charge on the digital tax issue. Um, the other thing that's odd is you remember, actually, at the end of the day, U.S. France trade is governed by the european union so yeah. it's, it's it's all very spurious and, I, and and i think there was a report in bloomberg that said that uh arnaud had solicited the letter um there is a report from reuters that said Brilliant. that shows basically the government people in the government backing down or sort of saying oh it's not binding anyway it all just seems like a bit of dirty tricks and and so, so uh, what is he
1: trying to do he's, he's he's trying to delay it i mean i guess you could the say later. Later. yeah
0: I think I think the basic because there's, you know, you get there is noise coming from the LBMH camp that, oh, you know, we're willing to sit down and talk, which means we just don't want to pay the 16.2. You know, it's just a classic case of billionaire buyer's remorse. And, you know, that the problem is, you know, this is it raises questions about the sanctity or whatever you want to call it of the trust that underlies contractual law and, and, you know, one's word. And a guy like Bernard Arnault has to, you, know, you have to think about his reputation, he should think about his reputation longer term, an argument I didn't put in the piece, but our colleague Lisa Yucca has written, which is, you know, one day he may have to try to convince Giorgio Armani to sell to him or the Prada uh, founder or whatever it might be. And, you know, you want to make sure that you're not seen as, as, as he is so often uh, described as a wolf in Kashmir. <laughs> uh, you know, wolf in Loro Piana clothing. So that, so I thought that was interesting. the, the, the um, the, but, but my point at the end of the day, Liam, was actually that he gets away with this all the time, and no. he probably will get scare the Tiffany board enough. They'll be sweating enough as they get closer to the de- the deadline of the tender offer at the end of November, and they'll say, oh, to hell with it. One thirty-five, one fifteen. What's the difference? Let's yeah. do it. And I would, and it's, and the point I made is he's done this kind he's, he's, his tactics are, are ruthless. They were when he tried to get control of Hermes, they were, and he failed in the end, but he made like $4 billion. So, hey, not so bad. And then when he tried to buy Gucci, um, he also sort of comes in with these really tough, nitty gritty kind of, uh, really no holds barred tactics. Um, but you can't argue with, the $80 billion, Mr. Arno.
1: It's a pretty good report card, isn't it? But um, yeah. whatever we so. might think of his tactics.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Thanks, Liam. Um, and uh, keep up the good work. Talk to you next week. Likewise. Cheers, Rob. Bye. Bye, Liam.
3: Hello. I'm Sharon Lam, and I'm chatting with our Asia economics editor, Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong. Hi, Pete. So big news in Japan this week. Yoshihide Suga, who was seen as the front runner for Japan's prime minister, was... Voted into the role by parliament on Wednesday, becoming the country's first leader, in nearly eight years after Shinzo Abe, his predecessor, retired for health reasons. Let's start with some basic questions, Pete, since you've been following this quite closely. Was this expected, and who exactly is Suga?
2: Hi, Sharon. Yeah, to answer your questions, yes, it was expected. There were brief signs of alternative candidates kind of putting themselves forward, but Suga, having been in government so long, managed to very quickly sweep them aside and take the top role. Who is Suga? He's kind of a classic technocrat, a master bureaucrat, master of the system. He's a chief cabinet secretary for a very long time. You know, he's had his ins and outs with Abe, but has been a loyal follower of his policy and implementer of it. Indeed, some of the Abenomics package are actually could be called Suganomics. Some of them were his ideas. You know, he's been very big on pushing, for example, for getting more women into the workforce, for getting more immigrants, immigrant work visas. So he's very much, you know, a creature of the system. Interestingly, as an individual, he's not a child of these political dynasties. He's the son of a, a strawberry farmer from the Akita prefecture. So he comes out of a poor agricultural background. But yeah, I mean, he's seen as a man who can get things done. What he is not seen as is Mr. Charisma, Mr. Personality. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to smile that much. Um, you know, there's a question of whether he can inspire the country the way that Abe managed to. Abe welded both economics with kind of a more nationalist agenda. He wanted to revise Japan's pacifist constitution to make it less pacifist. Suga was much more big on the economics front. But there's no question that Abe managed to kind of inspire a bit of Japanese mm-hmm. spirit. You know, the question is whether Suga will be able to do the same.
3: Right. And I did not know he was a son of a strawberry farmer. That's really interesting. And also you mentioned kind of some of his accomplishments. Um, And he is also considered by many to be a loyal Abe aide. To what extent are people expecting him to change the status quo in Japan? Or is he kind of expected to just continue to push forth Abe's signature economic policy, Abenautics?
2: We'll have to do a bit of both. He doesn't have a lot of latitude to make big changes to Abenomics, that would rattle markets. The core of Abenomics, or the first arrow, or I think it's the first arrow, was, was you know aggressive monetary stimulus. And that kind of has to stay in place. Abenomics and the central bank pulled the short-term interest rates into negative territory. They put a lot of cash into the system. They tried to keep the yen weak against the dollar. The markets do not want any of that to be rattled. Suga is certainly not going to try and do that. So I think most investors can be reassured that the core part on the economic policy front is not going to change that much. The question is, what else can you do? The economy is now back at the size roughly where it was when Abe took power back in 2012. You know, that's bad. Obviously, it's not all Abe's fault. There's been a series of natural disasters. There was a trade war. There was a giant slowdown in China, one of Japan's major export markets. You know, and now there's COVID-19 pandemic, which has shut down. The country forced it to postpone the Tokyo Olympics, you know, so just sitting there and kind of keeping Abenomics as it is, you know, won't be enough. There's a big $2 trillion stimulus package getting rolled out. That's a big headline figure, but actually delivering the funds is proving tricky. We see signs from central bank data that that consumers and companies are starting to hoard cash again. And that poses this existential psychological threat, right? So Japan went through decades of economic stagnation, a lot of it due to this kind of deflationary attitude or deflationary mindset, as they say, where companies and people assumed that things, because of deflation, that things would be cheaper tomorrow. So why buy them today? Why invest in this project? Let's just wait. And that proved a really toxic and difficult to escape cycle that Abe managed to break out of. The nightmare, you know, with consumer inflation or core inflation flattening out, is that Japan is going to end up shoved back into that cycle, which will be very difficult to break with monetary policy this time around, since rates are already so low. You know, So how do you transmit? The other part of Abenomics is the reform arrow, as it's called, which is the idea that you make structural changes to the way Japan works, bringing in more immigrants, getting more women to the workforce As part of that, raising wages, changing the way that corporate Japan behaves in terms of investing inside the country instead of putting all their money into foreign ventures. These are all things they want to do. Plus, there's the demographic issue of the age in society. Suga is on the right side of a lot of these things. You know, he definitely wants to do, for example, he wants to reform the banking system. There's way too many Japanese banks that aren't doing very well. He's a fan of consolidation. He's a fan of digitization, um, mm. which is a big project. I mean, the Japanese government still use faxes. The Japanese <laughs> people still do a lot of business using paper money. Um, right. So there's this laundry list of reforms that haven't been done yet that he can attack.
3: Right. And and you mentioned already quite a formidable task in terms of a lot of things he needs to deal with Japan now. And it's, I think, the worst post-war contractions like in the second quarter. So, I mean, given all of these competing priorities, has Suga said kind of what his main focus will be and and how much pressure will there be for him to, to execute on these things?
2: Well, there's a ton of pressure, obviously. I mean, his first task is to deal with the crisis. Right. Um, you know, the immediate health crisis, he wants to reform the health ministry, but a lot of these, you know, reform pays off later. Right now, he just needs to keep things afloat and ideally produce some sort of turnaround before these problems become onset. So that means getting the pandemic under control, getting the pandemic under control, and getting the pandemic under control. Fortunately, this is a guy, he might not be that inspiring, but he's a guy that knows how to get things done. He's got a pretty good power base and control that will help him implement harsh or tough measures that are necessary to get things around and should also make him an effective deliverer of stimulus to the extent that that's possible. So for now, his priority is deal with the emergency and, you know, Shugenomics, Abenomics, all these other packages can wait till a bit later.
3: Right. Okay. Well, charisma aside, let's hope that he does kind of change the situation and, and help revive Japan's economy. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Pete.
2: Thanks, Sharon.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day at Breakviews.com And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Avita Sen and stay healthy.